Amen. Good morning, everybody. Have your Bible with you today? Good. Genesis chapter 6 would probably be the best place to go to start. If you've been here the last uh, couple of weeks with us, you know that we're starting a new series, Old Testament Overview. This is the third week of that series, but really only the second week where we're actually talking about uh, the content of the Old Testament. I want to remind you that, that this is an overview. And, and as an overview at such high altitude, there are no doubt going to be details that we are going to leave out. Uh, there are no doubt questions that we're going to raise and then kind of leave unanswered. And I don't, I don't mean to leave you dissatisfied every week. In fact, I want you to take those opportunities to really, um, to really reach out and dig in a little bit and connect with some people and uh, ask questions in discipling relationships. Um, do some individual study on your own. Buy a good study Bible. You'll hear me talk about this a little bit later on. Buy a good study Bible and dig into the notes. Maybe even spend some time um, in your Sunday school class talking about some of these questions that might come up. But don't think that we're going to do an exhaustive Old Testament study in 12 weeks. This is not going to happen. Let me review a little bit of what we talked about last week. Last week, um, we talked about the antediluvian period. If you have this colorful sheet here, you might want to take it out. It's a great place to be taking notes for this series. If you didn't get one of these uh, over the last couple weeks, you can grab one on your way out today. They're at door number one there. Last week in the antediluvian period, the period of time between creation and the flood, we talked about four major things that happened there. Number one was creation. Remember we talked about God creating everything out of nothing by his word, and it was good. Remember that? We talked about creation. And then we talked about the fall when Adam and Eve sinned against God. He gave them one prohibition and and they broke it right off the bat. And because of that, we talked about the curse that came. Third point was about the curse, the consequences of the sin. There were immediate consequences in their relationship with God. There were consequences for the earth. There was a consequence for the snake and the woman and the man. We talked about the curse. And then finally, last week, we talked about the corruption that spread on the face of the earth. This sin that was brought into the world spread out, infected everyone, and covered everyone, and tainted everything. And it's that corruption, that spreading corruption, that leads us into the part of the Old Testament that we're going to talk about today. This downward trajectory or this downward spiral leads us into the narrative that we'll look at today as we talk about the flood And its aftermath. So, with that in mind, let's pray together before we dive into the text. God, we're glad to be able to come into your presence today and to sing your praises. We're glad to be able to get a glimpse of your throne room, flashes of lightning, rolls of thunder, glory, and light. And beauty. We're glad to be able to get a glimpse of that. And it stands out all the more when we look around this world and we see death and darkness, sin and corruption all around us. God, I pray today that you'll open our eyes to the depravity of man, to the lostness of the world. Pray today that you'll open our eyes to your justice and righteousness. And I pray that in the midst of all of this darkness, you will shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in and transform our lives by your grace. 
and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the way we're going to approach today as we talk about the period of time, basically from the flood until the call of Abraham... That's really what this text is going to cover today, from the flood to the call of Abraham. There are two major events that happen during that time. One is the flood itself, and the other is this scene at the Tower of Babel. And we'll talk about that later on in the day. And the way we're going to approach it is, I don't just want to tell you the story today. I'm going to assume, at least for the flood part and Noah's Ark that you're familiar with some of the things that happen there about the building of the ark and the rains that come and the flood that comes up and the animals that are on the ark and when the flood goes down and then the uh, repopulation of the earth, so to speak. I'm going to assume, maybe wrongly, (laughs) uh, but I hope not, I'm going to assume that you know some of that story. And so what I want to do is to draw out some some big ideas from this text, some big gospel ideas, some big worldview ideas that come out of this part of the Old Testament narrative. And the first one is this, that corruption, or more particularly sin, continues to increase and spread. (laughs) Throughout human history, sin continues to increase and spread. From Adam and Eve, to Cain, to Lamech, And then on and on and on it goes. Sin and corruption continue to spread. That's why God says in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6, if you look at that, Genesis 6, 5 and 6, says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. The wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. We talked about that a little bit last week toward the end of the message, and that's chilling, isn't it? Evil spread. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was sorry that he had made the earth. Read on down in chapter 6, starting in verse 11. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Again, we're trying to make the point that corruption, sin, continues to increase and spread as time goes forward from creation on. You can call it original sin. You can call it total depravity. You can call it the corruption of man. Whatever you call it, this is a bad scene. This is a bad picture on the earth that was good when God created it. But because of the fall, because of our rebellion against God, it gets bad in a hurry. And it's really bad. Psalm 51, David reflects on this sinfulness as he considers his own, not just act of sin with Bathsheba. You know, that, you know Psalm 51 was written after David sinned with Bathsheba. Stay tuned for about five more weeks, six more weeks, and we'll talk specifically about that story. But some of you are familiar with that story where David saw this woman. She was attractive. She wasn't his wife. He saw her. He desired her. He took her. Slept with her. They conceived a child together. David murdered her husband to cover it up, essentially. This is a bad scene. And as David is convicted about his sin, he not only reflects and confesses that specific sin, but he is mindful of his sinfulness. You get the difference there? We do specific sin because we are sinful. 
And David, as he confesses his sin, reflects on his sinfulness in Psalm 51 when he says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And listen to what he says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David says, I don't just do sinful things. I I, I am not just guilty of sinning. He says, I am sinful and have been from the beginning. We're talking here about the corruption of man, the sin that continues to increase and spread. Paul in Romans chapter 5 says it this way, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, right? Adam's sin, sin came into the world, death came into the world through sin, and then he says this, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what I want you to see right off the bat here is that the context of the flood is not some blue sky, everybody's happy, the flowers are blooming, the birds are chirping, and life is grand. The context of the fall is the depravity of man. Violence had filled the earth. Man was exceedingly sinful. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And God was sorry that he had made the earth. I think, I think let, me, let me say it this way. I think we've got the wrong picture in our minds when we say Noah's Ark. When we talk about the flood. We've got this precious moments picture with a rainbow and a giraffe sticking his neck out of the ark. And everything's happy. And it's not happy at all the clouds are dark the wind is blowing it is an ugly ugly scene last night i watched the uh the recent hollywood film called noah which is absolutely unbiblical in its content i would not recommend it as a uh compliment to this study all kinds of details about the biblical account are wrong but one thing they nailed was the tone of the whole thing It is dark and dirty and scary. And that's the scene for this story that we're talking about today. Don't get that wrong. The sin of man, corruption, is continuing to increase and it's continuing to spread. That's point number one. Point number two. Sin must be punished. This sinfulness, this sin must be punished. Genesis 6-7, God talks about what he's going to do. Look at it, Genesis 6-7. Right after he says, there's a lot of sin, he says this, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. From man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I have made them. What's God do? When he looks on the sinfulness of the world, what's he do? Does he say, well, it's okay. Boys will be boys. People will be people. It's just the way they are. What's he do when he looks at this giant mess on the world, on the earth? He says, I'm going to destroy it. I can't stand it. It must be punished. In 6.13, if you read that verse with me, it says, God said to Noah, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. John Piper refers to the flood as an aquatic holocaust. Aquatic 
holocaust. He's going to kill everything with water. This is a dark scene, right? So sin, corruption is spreading, it's increasing, and God must punish sin. We want to ask ourselves, though, when we consider this, why? Why does God react this way to sin? Why does God punish sin? And the answer is, it's who he is. Because of who he is, he will punish sin. Because of who he is, he must punish sin. Because he is holy, we sing about that, right? Holy, holy, holy. Because he is righteous, because he is just, he must punish sin. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, actually starting in verse 1, says this. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. As the droplets of the fresh, on the fresh grass and as the showers on the herb. For I pro- proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Catch that? Righteous and upright is he. They, that is a reference to man, they have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. You catch what's going on here? It's because of who God is, because he is holy and righteous and just. When he looks upon the earth and its sinfulness, he must punish that sin. He can't just act like it's no big deal. He can't just sweep it under the rug. He cannot just look the other way. He is righteous and must punish sin. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says a similar thing. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Justice and righteousness on the earth. I delight in these things, says the Lord. So corruption is spreading. Sin is spreading and increasing, and sin must be punished. Wayne Grudem, a great theologian, says it this way. As a result of God's righteousness... It is necessary that he treat people according to what they deserve. Thus, it is necessary that God punish sin, for it does not deserve reward. It is wrong and deserves punishment. Get this with me. Sin deserves punishment. And this is not a popular concept in today's world. In our day and age, when we talk about the righteousness of God or the justice of God, and heaven forbid we ever talk about the wrath of God, People don't like to hear those things. They will flood to hear us talk about salvation, but not judgment. And it makes no sense to me. Because I can only understand the greatness of my salvation in Christ when I grasp the reality of what I deserve because of my sin. Like if I don't understand what I've been delivered from, how can I appreciate the deliverance? What we're talking about here in the flood is the black backdrop against which the diamond of the gospel shines in all of its brilliance. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid that we don't have any concept of the black backdrop. I'm afraid that we, we, we just write this whole part out of the story. We do it in the flood narrative. We don't talk about the corruption of man. We don't talk about millions, perhaps, of people dying in this flood. 
We only talk about the eight that survived. We don't talk about people screaming as the waters rise. We only talk about the eight that survive. I'm glad eight survived, but I appreciate that all the more, knowing that everyone else perished. Everything else perished in that flood. And we do the same thing with the gospel. Oh, we talk about heaven, we talk about riches, we talk about grace, we talk about mercy, and we don't have any concept of judgment and wrath that we've been spared from. Do you get my point? We can't appreciate heaven unless we grasp hell. We can't appreciate forgiveness unless we feel the weight of our sin. Unless we feel this darkness, we cannot appreciate the light. And yet we want to write this whole part out of the story. You can't write it out of this story. So, number one, corruption, sin, continues to increase and spread. Sin must be punished. And thirdly, in the punishment of sin, we see mercy and grace. This is the good news. We'll smile now. For the rest of the day, we can smile, okay? No smiling in the first part of this day, but we will smile when we get to this part. Because in the punishment of sin, we see mercy and grace. And we've seen it from the beginning. Even, yet, even last week, when we talked about Adam and Eve, and they sinned against God. There is mercy and grace in the garden. Even as God punishes them for their sin, he shows them mercy and grace. Remember, he comes into the garden. Knowing what they've done, knowing how they've disobeyed, knowing the consequence... He comes into the garden to talk to them about it, right? Not only does he come into the garden, he clothes them. One of the first things that happened when Adam and Eve ate that fruit is they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. And what does God do? Out of grace and mercy, he clothes them. And maybe the biggest act of grace and mercy that we saw in the garden last week is that God makes a promise to do battle with that snake. Remember that? He says, oh yeah. Snake, you're going to have a problem with the seed of this woman. That's a reference to Jesus, by the way. You're going to have a problem with the seed of this woman. And you're going to strike him, snake. You're going to strike Jesus on his heel. But he will crush you on the head. That is mercy and grace in the midst of the judgment. Notice where it's at in the flood narrative. It's in chapter 6, verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8, God says, Corruption has spread. Sin is rampant. Sin must be punished, but in the punishment we'll see mercy and grace when God says in Genesis 6, 8, but. It's the best word, right? It's the best word in the Bible, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's an interesting phrase, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's only used one other time in the Old Testament as a reference to Moses. There are only two guys in the Old Testament that are said to have found favor in the sight of the Lord, uh, Noah and Moses. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God gave him some instructions, right? He said, I'm going to destroy the world. Because of the sinfulness of man and because of my righteousness, I'm going to destroy it all. But I'm going to save you. And I'm going to save the animals. Not all of them. only Only a small portion. Only a pair of most of them, right? He gave him very specific details about building a boat. Remember this? I'm not going to go through all those details about the size of the boat or the number of animals or the length of time it took him to build it or the length of time that the rain came down and the floods came up or the length of time that they spent floating in the boat or the length of time when they started sending birds out. You remember that part of the story? Water starts to go down and they say, let's send a bird out and see if he can land anywhere. And he comes back and nothing goes back, doesn't come back. Remember that whole scene? Yeah, I'm not going to talk to you about that, okay? 
You look, look that part up on your own. We're not going to talk about where that big boat came to rest. I want you to study all that on your own. I want you to get yourself a good study Bible and read into those dimensions, read into what it means that he took two of every kind of animal. Does that mean species of animal, or is that a bigger category? How did all that work? There's a lot of interesting detail there that we just don't have time for today. So get a good study Bible and read it. ESV study Bible. Anybody got an ESV study Bible in here right now? Hold it up if you've got it. That thing is dynamite. If you need a study Bible, get that one. Um, There's also a website called Answers in Genesis. Generous Generous answers in Genesis. Answersingenesis.org. You can go there and uh, read all kinds of details about the flood and the ark and some, some neat stuff. Or, here's a, here, listen to this. We will take you to the Creation Museum. July, June 23rd and 24th, we've planned a trip. Kelly Smith has done a lot of work on this. Planned a trip for families. That's a Thursday and Friday. We're going to drive to the Creation Museum, which is kind of between Louisville and Cincinnati, from what I understand. And uh, Ken Ham has put together this amazing hands-on museum where you can look at some of these things and study it more carefully and see some of it. In fact, he's building a life-size replica of the ark. Going to populate it with some animals. I don't know if they'll be alive or just like taxidermied anyway june 23rd and 24th we're gonna go it will cost you less than 100 probably closer to 50 dollars per person to go be able to go to the museum thursday and friday and spend the night in a hotel and have 25 dollars of food voucher money that's a deal right so if you're interested listen if you're interested in what we're talking about this week and last week, mark your calendar, June 23rd, 24th. You can get some of this stuff that I'm not giving you today at that, at that trip, okay? So, in the punishment, we see mercy and grace. God tells Noah to build an ark, gives him very specific uh, details about its construction, about the gathering of the animals. <laughs> Interesting typo in my notes here. It says fathering of the animals. No, 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 that's not it. Gathering of the animals. That would be in the boat along with he and his family. Look at 6.18. In the punishment, there is mercy and grace. Chapter 6, verse 18, he says, God says, I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. That's grace and mercy at work right there. And this is the part of the story that should shock us. This is the part of the, the, the flood ark story that should shock us is that God would tell anyone to build a boat. That God would tell anyone, I'm going to save you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. You take your family and you get in there and I'm going to spare you. What should shock us is not that God destroys the world. That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense even to us with our sense of justice. We just don't like to talk about it. It makes sense that he would flood the earth and destroy everything. What doesn't make sense is that he would save anyone, but he does. And we rejoice that he saves some. Not that he wouldn't save all, but we rejoice that he saves some. So that raises a question, though. If we're saying that this is a demonstration of grace and mercy, we need to deal with the statements about Noah's righteousness. The question is, was Noah chosen because he was sinless? Does the Bible teach us that Noah and his family were spared because, unlike the rest of the world, they were not sinful? No, it doesn't. It does say that he was righteous. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. It says, these are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. 
Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. But what we need to understand is that there's a difference between blameless and sinless. There's a difference between righteous and sinless. And clearly, Noah and his family were not sinless. And the demonstration of that actually comes after the flood. You know what Noah does as soon as he gets off the boat? He does the best thing. As soon as he and his family come off the boat onto the dry land, he builds an altar to the Lord and he offers some animals as a sacrifice. You know what the second thing he does? It's the worst thing. (laughs) It's the worst thing. He plants a vineyard, he makes some wine, he gets drunk, and there is this terrible scene that we'll talk about more in a minute. It's full of sinfulness, not just with him, but with his family. Was Noah a sinful man? Yeah, he was. So did God spare him because of his sinlessness? Absolutely not. God spared him because of God's grace. Noah was spared because of God's grace. We've got to get that right. Noah was not a sinless man. And the salvation that he received came by grace through faith. The salvation he received came by grace through faith. Hebrews 11 is a fantastic chapter, right? In fact, you get some Old Testament overview in Hebrews chapter 11 about these great characters. And there's a statement about Noah. But I want to read before that because we talked about some of this last week. This is what God's word says in Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by a word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch, we talked about him, was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And listen to what the author of Hebrews says about Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. You catch what's going on there? That the the salvation that Noah and his family received was a gift of grace that they received by faith. He received righteous standing before God by trusting in God. He didn't earn his way up into heaven God gave him the gift of salvation. He received it by faith. And his obedience is evidence of his faith. That's what the author of Hebrews is teaching us. That Noah's obedience is the demonstration of his faith. That he built the ark is a demonstration of his faith. And that's one of the cool things when you read the story. If you read chapter 7, chapter 6, 7, and 8, you're going to see God said, Noah did. God said, Noah did. God said, Noah did. God said, Noah did. Over and over and over again, God tells him to do something, and he does it. What is that? That's a demonstration of faith in God. The opposite is also true. And we live that out so often. God says, we don't. God says, we don't. God says, we don't. That's not what faith looks like, folks. Faith looks like obedience. Obedience is the evidence of faith. So catch this. The story is that God is going to destroy the world. Every living creature on it because of sin. And yet, he spares this one man and his family by grace 
through faith. Now remember, one of the things we're going to do at the end of the day is say, where's the gospel here? Oh, the gospel's everywhere here, right? The gospel is everywhere. So, sin is increasing. Sin is spreading. Sin must be punished. In the punishment, we see mercy and grace. And number four, after the flood, sin continues to increase and spread. The flood does not fix the problem. Noah and his family still bear the sin of Adam and spread the sin of Adam. The ESV study Bible has this note. It says, while the land was cleansed from the defilement caused by human wrongdoing and a new start is made possible by God, the people's nature has not been transformed, as chapter 9 reveals. The inclination of the human heart is still toward evil. After the flood, not everything returns to a pristine condition. Human humanity, humanity is not renewed. After the flood, sin continues to spread and increase. Look at chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 18 to 29. Like I said, Noah gets off the boat. He does the right thing. He leads his family in worship. They make sacrifices to God. They thank him for the salvation they've been given. And then they go right back to the old ways of the world. Genesis 9, 18 to 29. says, Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. That's important. Hold on to that. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see the nakedness of their father. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. I'm not going to trace for you what the possible situations were in that tent with Noah while he's drunk. What I do want to say is it was really, really bad. Any way you slice it, it was really, really bad. And our English translation, our English understanding doesn't do it justice. It seems like Ham just walks in and, oops, oops, I saw my dad naked. You don't get cursed for that. Your dad doesn't curse you and your children For something like that. There is something big going on here. And it is is a demonstration not only of Noah's depravity in his drunkenness and whatever the nakedness going on is. it's It's a demonstration of his depravity but also Ham's depravity. Because whatever happens with Ham, he's interested in this. And it seems like his brothers recognize his sinfulness and they do their best. Did you notice on the, in the story it says they put the blanket on their shoulders and they, they back up so as not to see their father's nakedness and cover him? They're trying to shield themselves from the sinfulness that's going on. I want you to see that the flood didn't fix the problem. We're still sinful. You got it? It's demonstrated on in chapter 11 in the story of the Tower of Babel. Skipping forward several generations here. God made clear that Noah and his family were to multiply, fill the earth, but he also said you're supposed to spread out and fill the earth. 
want you to spread out and fill the earth, but they didn't do it. They multiplied, but they didn't spread out. They all gathered in one place and blatant disobedience to God. This is the story in chapter 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over, uh, abroad over the face of the earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all the same language. And this is what they have begun to do. Now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel or Babylon. That's an interesting note. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. John Piper has preached an excellent message on this passage. I highly recommend it. I'll post a link for it later. He teases out some modern-day implications of this scene, and it's brilliant. What I want you to see right off the bat is they aim to build a city. They aim to build a tower so that they can make a name for themselves, so that they won't be spread out. So what's going on here? They want to make a name for themselves, and they don't want to be spread out. And did you catch the irony when when the Lord says, let's go down and check out this tower they've made? The tower that was supposed to reach into heaven, God says, this is your effort. I can't even see it from where I'm at. I'm going to have to go down to check it out. All of this effort of men to reach God, God says it's nothing. And it's the same with our our self-righteousness. We think we build ourselves up to God. We're going to reach up to God. And I think he looks down and says, I can't even see. I can't even see what you're doing from here. You're so far away. An incredible scene that is a demonstration of the continued sinfulness of man after the flood. So, last week we said we're going to ask three questions at the end of every week. Last week those three questions came out nice and neat. The answer was the same for all of them. And it's not always going to be like that. It's not always going to be so easy to say what was the relationship like between God and man. God and his, I mean, yeah, God and man, the people of God and their brothers or the people of God and their neighbors. Uh, This week, if we're talking about what is the relationship like between God and man during this period, I would say it's one of distance and tension. Distance because of their sinfulness. Distance because of God's righteousness. But tension because the righteous God, the just And holy, righteous God is seeking to spare them, seeking to save them, seeking to redeem them. And this is is just begging for Christ on the cross so that God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So distance and tension between God and man. What about the relationship amongst the people of God? Well, the people of God are Noah and his family during this time. And I would say there are highlights and lowlights in this relationship. Highlights. Obedience in the building of the ark. Highlight in the altar for sacrifice after landing when the flood receded. Low light, Noah gets drunk. Low light, whatever happened with Ham in that tent and the nakedness. It was bad. Highlights and lowlights amongst the people of God. What about the relationship between the people of God and their neighbors? Well, again, the people of God are Noah and his family at this point. And we would, we would assume there was some tension between the neighbors, Right? Uh, As Noah builds the ark, 
Uh, it, it is a reasonable expectation that he was ridiculed, that people said, you're going to build an ark here in the desert for a flood? I don't think so. So he might have got ridiculed. There was certainly tension when the flood came. Tension between the people of God and their neighbors when the flood came and the waters are coming up and those eight people are inside the ark and everyone else is outside perishing. If that's not tension, I don't know what is. And if that doesn't make you think about the world we're living in today, you've got something wrong with you. You're missing the point today. There is tension because of the salvation that they have received and the lostness of the world around them. Final question, where's the gospel in all this? Oh, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. In fact, Peter, in First and Second Peter, says the flood, the flood is a picture of the destruction that is to come, the greater destruction that is to come. In other words, the flood is this small picture where the sinfulness of man was great on the earth, God must punish sin, and God is going to destroy those who are sinful. The flood is a small picture of the greater destruction that is to come. Let me say it this way. Judgment is coming on the earth because of sinfulness. Like today. This is the world we live in. Judgment is coming upon the earth because of sinfulness. But here's the good news. The ark that was built to save Noah and his family, there's an ark today too. There's a way of salvation in the coming judgment. And it's not a boat. It's not made out of wood. It's Jesus Christ. Judgment is coming, but there is salvation. And that salvation is only in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ark. He is the solitary means of salvation. There is an invitation, just like in chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and your household. There's the invitation today. I want to extend it to you. Enter the ark that is Jesus. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus for salvation, for the rescue. There's the invitation to come in and be saved. There's a solitary way of salvation. There was only one door in that ark. Do you notice that? We didn't read it. But if you go back and study, you'll see there was only one door, and Noah couldn't close it. God had to close it. There's only one door, and I'm telling you there is only one way to salvation today, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. And lastly, there is salvation in the ark that is Jesus. There was security in the ark for Noah and his family. The Lord shut the door and shut them in and sealed them in. And there is salvation and security in Jesus Christ. He will seal you in. He will shut you in by his grace through faith in him. The ark is Christ. Third, we need to learn from this story when it comes to the gospel that we cannot work our way up to God. Cannot work our way up to God. All of my righteous deeds, all of my righteous acts, if I'm trying to build those up and work my way up to him, he would have to come down to see them. He would say, oh, yeah, look at that. That's cute. That little tower you built, that's really cute. Had to come all the way down here to see it, but it's really cute. You think you're working your way up to me? No chance of that. John Piper says in his sermon, oh, that moon? That moon you landed on? You, you humans, you're so great. That moon you landed on? Where is that thing, by the way? I can't even see it from here. <laughs> it's good. It's good. We cannot work our way up to God. And then this last part, maybe the most important. How can, how can a righteous God save sinners? How can a righteous God remain righteous and yet forgive sinners? 
The answer is the cross. Listen to Romans chapter 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned. Hear that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed Publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Publicly as a propitiation. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. It's propitiation. That's what it is. He took the wrath for you so that you can know grace. Propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How does a righteous God forgive sinful man? He's got to punish sin, right? In order order for his justice to be satisfied, he's got to punish sin. So how in the world could he save, forgive Redeem sinful man through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Christ on the cross is the satisfaction of the wrath of God and the securing of our forgiveness of sins. Oh man, I hope you see that. He is just and merciful. He is just and gracious through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So repent of your sins and believe in Jesus today for salvation. Let's stand together and pray. God, we want to praise you for all of this. We want to see the gospel in the story. We want to look to Christ for salvation. God, we we believe that judgment is coming. Not a flood, but a fire. It's rightly coming upon the earth. Because the earth is full of sin. Corruption is spreading. We are increasingly sinful. Every inclination of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil all the time. And we deserve the fire of judgment. You be just to bring it and to wipe us all out. You would be just to do that and right to do that. And God, I thank you that you have provided a way in the midst of the just punishment of sin. You've provided a way for salvation by sending your son to be the substitute and to take the wrath for us in our place that we might be forgiven. That we might be reconciled to you. This is unbelievable. This goes far beyond redemption through a boat. Far beyond salvation through a floating vessel. You've sent your son to rescue us. God, I pray that we will be a people who believe that message. Proclaim that message. Depend on the work of Christ on our behalf. And God, I pray for people here today who are perishing. If the fire came today, they would be consumed because they are not in Christ. God, I pray that today you'll show them their need. You'll show them your provision and that that you'll give them faith. You'll give them faith to believe, repentance to turn, that you'll bring salvation to men and women and boys and girls in this room today for your glory. I pray that you do this in Christ's name.